Welcome to Living in Time. My name is Noah Sviven. I study history here at Stanford. And today on the program, we're joined by Professor Paul Robinson. Professor Robinson is the Richard W. Lyman Professor in the Humanities Emeritus here at Stanford. He's an intellectual historian who's written a range of books focusing largely on three topics, the history of psychoanalysis, the history of ideas about human sexuality, especially the experience of gays and lesbians, and the connection between intellectual history and the history of opera. Professor Robinson is a committed teacher who's continued to teach since his retirement, and he is a very good friend. Professor Robinson, welcome to the program. Thank you. You've been at Stanford since 1967. How has the university changed in the intervening years? My experience at the university hasn't changed a whole lot because of what I teach. I've had the same kind of students, basically, from the beginning, you know, uh, intellectually invested students in European intellectual history. But I've been aware that the larger population, the ones that don't necessarily take my classes, has changed tremendously. They've changed most obviously in terms of ethnicity, race. You know, it's, it's, it was a very white place when I got here. It's, so it, it feels very different. And, and also, I, I got here just as Stanford was becoming a great world university. It hadn't quite achieved that status. It was still more of a, a good local university in, as it was in the 50s. But the money was kicking in from Silicon Valley. So when I, for example, this could be evidence of it. When I got here, there were fewer than 20 colleagues in the history department. Of course, they were all men. Um, now, you know, 56 years later, there are 50 hmm. professors in the history department, uh, making it a much bigger operation with much wider scholarly interests. Than it had. And I think that's true of the humanities in general at Stanford. Stanford, like Emory, and maybe like NYU, grew profoundly in the second half of the 20th century and moved from being a, a, a good but somewhat provincial university to a, a world-class research university. And I felt like I got on, you know, I got, I was on this ride. I was here while this happened. You don't know when you take a job that that's gonna be the case. You might be going someplace that's in decline. Mm and uh, getting smaller. So I've, I, think I, I think of myself as very lucky to have been a professor at Stanford during a period of amazing uh, expansion, transformation. But in, my, in terms of my own work, my own teaching especially, uh, it seems more the same than different. So when you talk about being the the beneficiary of, of chance. I mean, it sounds like you're counting yourself among those who cite serendipity in their description of, of, of their own life and its course. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it is serendipitous. You, you can't calculate that kind of... I, mean, my, I might not have got a job at Stanford. I, in fact, came close to taking a job at UC Davis, which is a perfectly good and excellent university, but it hasn't had anything like the transformation that, that Stanford has. And my, I think my experience as a teacher and as a scholar at Davis would have been very different from that. But it's kind of an accident. I'm curious what your view is of the role of the university in society today, and especially, I mean, taking into account the differences that exist between you know, public universities, these grand land-grant institutions, and then places of Stanford that are islands of, of, of concentrated resources. Um, I mean, do you have a... I guess there's two ways to approach a question like this. I mean, there's the descriptive reality of, of what's going on differently in these different places, and then there's a prescriptive view of, of whether one thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds. Well, I guess I'm of two minds. I mean, obviously, this incredible concentration of very smart and accomplished people, I'm thinking of the faculty, but also, you know, the, the students, both undergraduates and graduates who are, will join that world. They are very smart and very accomplished. Uh, you know, it makes for high-powered intellectual life. It makes for the 
production of scholarship, at, at a, a good scholarship. Uh, so great universities have you know do these wonderful things. On the other hand, and this is part of the critique as you hear a lot these days, they are also a reflection of the radical uh, division in American society. They are part of a, a group of elite you know, folk who, I, I don't want to say run the place, but who benefit from this education. You know, I mean, there's a proposition, if you go to Stanford, if you're a student at Stanford or at Harvard, you, you can hardly fail. You're, you're, you're marked for success. And many people think that this is unfair that it's a, it systematically divides society between the haves and the have-nots. And I think there's something to that, which means one should uh, try to do away with this, what would you call it, the system we have where there are you know, very great, ex wealthy universities that attract the, the best students and the best faculty, and then the the large mass of mediocrity, you know, state colleges and so forth, which don't have the same quality of people. But, and maybe it perpetuates or recreates the, the fundamental divisions, between, you know, unfair divisions in American society. So it's possible to think well of the university, think universities are a great good thing, which is the way I did, and be very grateful to be at one. And at the same time, be prepared to say there's a downside to this. There's something unfair about it. It's, 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 a, it's a class situation, I guess you could say. I want to ask you about um, the issue of, I don't know, trying, trying, trying to pin down what it is that has caused historical change. And we can take as a case study, you know, the diversification of the Stanford student body, the increase of women faculty. Um, what, what can we point to that drove these changes? Um, well, that's clearly products of ch changes of a broad social and political nature in the society. Uh, you know, the, the fact that there are many more women on the faculty at Stanford and Harvard now than there used to be. There were none. In my, when I came here in 1967, there were zero women in the history department. And I, three or four years later, hired the first woman, who's now retired, of course. Uh, and that was a function, broadly speaking, of the women's movement, of the rise of feminism in American society. And uh, uh, so, so, you know, I, I, see, I always, when I think about why universities change, they change because of bigger structural changes in the, in the society. That's, I mean, it's, it's a kind of quasi-Marxist way of thinking about any kind of historical phenomenon, that it's big historical changes are driven by what I think of as structural, social, and economic processes. Uh, channeled through political action often. But the, at the deep level, the, the, the level that causes for movement, it's, these are processes that are almost impersonal in the sense that you can't make a decision. Uh, you can intervene. I'm thinking you know, Martin Luther King intervened into what was going on in American society. It probably made a difference. But there was going to be a, you know, a civil rights movement regardless of individual leaders, in my opinion. So I, I, I always look to deep, uh, it's what, what I think of as impersonal forces. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, the, in the particular case of Stanford, of course, there was one, one economic development, social economic development that made it what it is, and that's Silicon Valley. I mean, where there used to be orange groves and lemon groves, this incredibly successful and money-making industry happened, and a lot of that money poured into Stanford. Stanford also benefited secondarily from the huge possession of land here in this area, which turned out to be enormously valuable. Think of the shopping center. Think of the money that Stanford made by allowing this... Uh, 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 
elitist shopping centers too. So, so, but those Silicon Valley, you know, how do you explain something like that? It's again, I think technology, economics has its own logic. It depended on individual people, individual entrepreneurs, obviously to, to happen, but something broader and impersonal was also at work. My sense is, is, is that historians self-fashion as objective thinkers, as people who are approaching questions really empirically. And I suppose my impression is that this can lead to a sense of detachment from the movement of time and from maybe even issues that are happening in, in present. And maybe that's not the case for the fully developed historian, but as I'm trying to make sense of, of how a historian thinks about history... I'm struck by the possibility for, in one's effort to step out and look, look, look at it from a distance, you know, that, 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 that process has a risk of distancing oneself from a sense of involvement. Or in, how, does, how does one then make sense, right? If one is approaching these questions of historical change in one's scholarship, how does one then make sense in one's personal political life of one's role in change over time. Well, you know, it, it, to a certain extent, it, it depends on what you're studying as a scholar. If you're studying ancient Chinese society, you know, pre-Qing society, it probably is not deeply connected to your situation and your involvement in, in, in the present. So I think, and, and of course, historians have the notion that they should objectively, disinterestedly, try to find out what happened where, you know, often long ago and far away. And a, a, an attitude of, well, of, of empiricism, of being open to evidence and not bringing present, current present-day preconceptions to bear, to distort what you're finding, is very much part of the ideology, the, 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 the mindset of being a professional historian. But when you study modern phenomena, as I have, you know, I'm a historian essentially of the last 200 years, where you're studying the, you know, where, where modernity is happening, where the various the structures like capitalism and democracy that are part of our current world are coming into place, it's much more, much more difficult to maintain a kind of disinterested, objective, because you, uh, they bear on the present, and you have convictions as a political creature, as a person living in that society, about what's good and bad about it. And it, I think it becomes very hard to separate the, uh, your identity as an objective, disinterested person studying a, a subject in this case, you know, modern Europe or the modern West, and your own investment, your own con convictions. So it's a, it's an, a, a problem, and it, I don't think historians always succeed in doing it. And their work can become distorted by, by uh, um, passion or by political uh, conviction. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't do that, your work, your work can become kind of, kind of frozen, <laughs> and as you you sort of suggested, it takes on a certain it sort of dies. It, it's separate from our 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 living selves. Uh, historians have been talking and agonizing about this at least for two centuries. The stuff, the stuff, the issue, the question of objectivity. And you know, the vast, many, many volumes have been devoted to it. And great, great thinkers like Max Weber have tried to, you know, spell out the right way to think about this this issue. Uh, I it I don't let it. Uh, t I I don't uh, agonize about it. I just I do my work, and I recognize that there's going to be a certain amount of tension between being a good historian on the one hand and being an, an involved contemporary citizen. But uh, you you have not been, by my as far as I'm aware, you've not been accused of, of being detached from present issues so much as I think one book reviewer wrote, or a colleague maybe, diving for the genitals. Yeah, well, I was writing a book about the genitals. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a book, I wrote a, a study of... 
autobiographies written by gay men in France, the United States, and England. I think of 14 autobiographers. And one reviewer did, in fact, say that a fault of the book was that it immediately, or in each case, I, I tried it to be as specific and precise and you could say graphic as possible about the sex lives of these peoples since after all the, the subject that made them, that identified them and became the theme of the book was that they were gay men who wrote autobiographies. I thought, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not willing to talk about uh, their sexual lives, you, you, don't, you, you can't possibly do justice to the to the subject. So I, I also, when I hear this phrase, diving for the genitals, I suspect that behind it lies a kind of, uh, uh, what, what's the right word? Repressiveness. That is to say, don't talk about sex. Maintain your dignity. And that's really... A, a, and my reaction is that the genitals are what it's all about. If we didn't have genitals, we wouldn't have this issue. So to, to die for them is to be intellectually responsible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I mean, of course, this is part of a, an, a, um, an intellectual heritage, beginning with your, your first scholarly subject, Freud. I mean, maybe not beginning with him, but he, of course, is a key um, entry into that history. Yeah, you mean Freud? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, uh you know, there's a there's a very close connection between the main events of my life, my my personal life, especially my early life. You know, I was born in 1940, so I was a teenager in the 1950s, the repressive 1950s, the McCarthyite 1950s, when I was trying to figure these things out, and. Uh, and I was a gay person in a society that was didn't recognize that as a possible way to be. And I planned my life accordingly, which was to have a straight life. This was when I'm a teenager and in my early, early 20s. Um, but I was, from the start, interested in this subject. I mean, I was, I was thinking about and studying sexuality was not just another subject that I, among many. It was deeply pertinent to my situation. And this became much more dramatically so in the 1960s when gay liberation happened. And uh, uh, I, as you know, I, I changed my mind as about what shape my life would take. And even though I was married, and had, had, a, had, had a daughter, I, in my mid-20s, which, you know, in the middle of the 1960s, when I took this job, in fact, at Stanford, decided, without too much trouble, that I was going to change ships, and did. But you, you, you were married to a woman. I was right? married to a, a woman uh, for three years, and it was part of my life plan to, you know, to have that, to, to be a straight man, to have a family and so forth, and become a professor. Um, but I, because of historical changes, I, I was, it became very clear to me that it's silly. It, it, it contradicts your desires, your deep identity. Why not shape your life around that? And, you know, and which I proceeded to do. And so it, it, I'm, my intellectual interests are it's not surprising that they should be drawn at the beginning in the in the 60s two figures historical figures intellectuals writers who have been concerned with understanding sexuality i mean freud has many claims to greatness and historical importance but everybody knows that maybe his single most important accomplishment was to bring the examination of sexual to make the examination of sexual experience respectable and central to interpreting human lives. I mean that that's after a century, if you will, at least a century at least in England, and the United States, of denial, of repression. So he was a he's a kind of 
liberating figure for anybody whose whose own situation is intensely affected by sexuality. So in my being drawn, I mean, there are many things about him that, that are attractive. Among other things, he's just spectacular writer and a powerful intellectual, powerful mind and imaginative. But I think at the center of my interest in Freud, and I wrote a, a couple books that were really basically about Freud and his followers, was the fact that he was the man who's the figure who more than anybody else at the beginning of the 20th century and the 19th century insisted on talking about the importance, the centrality, the reality of sex. And so I wasn't thinking that way in a kind of systematic way, but that was what was going on. Of course, Freud has a bad rap, and he's had a bad rap for a while. And and one, I mean, you have talked about how we can how we can describe the reception of thinkers going up and down like stocks, and and Freud's stock has gone down as the as psychoanalysis has been what pushed. Out, out of out of what mainstream favor, but I guess I want to ask about uh, right. There's different ways to approach thinkers. We can think about um, what the the quote unquote truthfulness of their ideas, and this is especially relevant when someone has scientific a scientific project. And then we can also think about their legacy and the way they're fitting into the history of ideas that that people are are having about a certain topic, and. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, I think it's obvious that you have worked on how Freud is situated into the history of thought about sexuality, m- minds, etc. But, but what about this issue of, of quote-unquote truthfulness? I mean, what, what, what do you say to those who, when they hear the word Freud, recoil? I don't think the, tr- truthfulness is the proper way to think of it. I mean... Fr- Freud is indisputably, demonstrably, the most influential thinker of the 20th century. So whether, even if it was completely false, he would have the intellectual story would have to attend to his ideas because of his of his influence. I don't think I think there is one of the categories by which we sort of measure figures like Freud has to do with truth, with as would be true with also with Darwin, with Marx, that they have said things that have the feeling of reality about them. And if they if they were what if they were talking about what uh, extraterrestrial beings or something like that, we would easily dismiss them, no matter how many readers they had, as crackpots. And there are people who think Freud was a crackpot, that his ideas are just brash and radical enough that they come close to being uh, crazy. Uh, the, 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 an example of uh, such a Freudian idea that suffered enormously is the notion of penis envy. No, now even you know, no Freudian embraces this idea anymore because of the because it's misogynistic. Uh, on the other hand, you have to think of someone like Freud as a figure. He was born in 1856, who was already in his mid 40s when the 20th century began. He's basically his intellectual formation is entirely in the 19th century, so that he has you know lots of baggage, and the way he thinks about women is a, the best example. He thinks about women very much as a Victorian gentleman would. He insists that they have a sexual life, and it's very important to, to understanding, to interpreting them. Uh, but he still sees them as second-class citizens. It's, uh, they're, they're an afterthought. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's a wonderful piece of evidence in Freud's life, and that is in the 18, 1880s, he courted his future wife, and they didn't live in the same town. He was in Vienna. She was in Hamburg. So this courtship, although they met, was primarily conducted by mail. And these letters, of which there are a thousand that Freud wrote to her, were saved. So you can read about his courtship of this young German woman, Jewish German woman. And of course, it's what we would now call profoundly sexist, misogynistic. He's always telling her she has to you know, do this, do that, to be his loyal wife and so forth. So it, it's not surprising that when he gets into his own ideas in the 20th century, 
the, the important idea of the unconscious of infantile sexuality, that there would be a deep residue of sexist or misogynistic thinking. And many subsequent thinkers have tried to, you know, get rid of that, try to, you know, make him less objectionable in that in that respect. There's another kind of critique of Freud, which is not specific to the denigrating things he says about women or or, or others, uh, and that is whether or not he provides satisfactory evidence uh, to for his ideas. Well, you rightly imply, like as you said, that he thought of himself as a scientific thinker and he thought his ideas were a contribution to the history of science, like the ideas of Newton or the ideas of Darwin. Um, but th that claim has been criticized. That. Uh, there are many people who would allow that Darwin was a true scientist, even though it involves, you know, Darwin's ideas involve a great deal of speculation. Uh, they're, they're, uh, there's no direct evidence, you know, for, for natural selection. It's an explanatory hypothesis, and that's the way Darwin talks about it, it's a hypothesis, that accounts for things, for the evidence in the biological world that's out there. Uh, and mo most historians of science regard that as a genuine scientific achievement, that he belongs in the same you know, list as people like, like uh, Newton and so forth before him. There's much more conflict and disagreement about whether Freud fits. Some people think he goes over the line, that his ideas are much more speculative and unsupported by the kind of evidence that would make them legitimate. What Americans usually mean when they say that about Freud is they mean scientific studies with a, a sufficient number of people or figures, not just anecdotes, not just individual case histories. Freud builds his ideas on the on a handful of case histories. His patients, obviously, he hears their stories. He develops hypotheses to explain them, but he doesn't have control groups. Uh, you know, what about the people who don't come to the doctor with a neurosis? <laughs> Do they have these same feelings? And what? How common is it? So, and that's a, I, I think a serious. What is a methodological objection to Freud? And there's a huge amount of ink been spilled uh, on it, both by his critics and his defenders. So the, 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 part of the problem with Freud has got to do with pre prejudice. Part of it, however, has to do with the claim to, that this is scientific. And you're, you're certainly right. Freud was, at, in America at least, was at his height in terms of his influence and the admiration he garnered in the mid-20th century, at least in certain places like New York City, filled with Jews often who had left Europe, Jewish intellectuals, many, the most famous of whom went to see their psychoanalysts once a week and to find out what was really going on. Uh, that moment has passed. Uh, most people, if they go to a psychoanalyst these days, go once a week. <laughs> And it's usually for some specific problem. It's not to figure out what's going on in their deep psyche. Uh, he's, I, I think he will, from the point of view of intellectual history, he will continue to be studied. Maybe from the point of view of psychiatry or medicine, uh, his importance will continue to decline. I'm not sure. Let, let's pivot back to talking about your coming of age in the 1950s and and then the 1960s, and that experience of, of being a gay man then, and the reception in your own mind of the gay liberation movement. I mean, what was it, how, how were you hearing about it as you were going about your life as a, as in a graduate the, in the, student? In the 60s, it was in the newspapers, it was in the news, it was, it, it, an issue of Life magazine was devoted to San Francisco I think in 63 or 64, becoming a, a, having a huge gay population. Uh, so, so there were, there, there was evidence available to anybody just sort of paying attention. Uh, so, so, and, and sometimes this evidence came into your own life directly. 
So I think I tell a story about that uh, essay about my about becoming a historian. How in 19 what would it have been 65 in the mid 60s when I was a graduate student at Harvard, I went to a, a Celtics basketball game with some of my buddies in graduate school which is you take the subway down to Massachusetts Avenue and then you walk along Massachusetts Avenue till you get to the Coliseum where you see the basketball game. And on that street, I walked past an open door and looked in to what was clearly a gay bar. Bunch of men standing around or sitting around. And this is just an accident of the route, the route I took to, to go to this basketball game. But there it was before my eyes, and I virtually made a resolution at that point that I was going to come back here. Mm-hmm. So you know that, that there's it's it's there is evidence before your eyes. There's evidence in on television. Uh, you start to hear about you know people write gay novels and so forth. When, when I was a teenager in the 1950s, at least in Southern California where I grew up, this whole issue was enveloped in absolute silence. This whole matter was not part of daily discourse. Uh, so that I, and although I, and when I had gay experiences, you know, in the band, when I get taken home and seduced by another band member in what, in 1954 or something, when I was 14. The, in retrospect, what was most striking about this experience, it was a sexual experience. It was unambiguous. It was terrific. I mean, all kinds of things can be said about it. But, the, but what's most striking is this was a, a fellow bandmate that, that this happened, is that nothing was said Nothing was said while having sex. Nothing was said the next day when you're together in the band room. There's no, there are no words. Hmm. This, this is unspeakable. So it cannot, you, I don't know how you conceptualize it in a situation like that, but you, the clearest thing is that this can't be, this can't be part of your spoken life. <laughs> if it, if it exists, it's going to have to exist on the margins, and nothing will ever be said. So, uh, and, you know, that wasn't true true everywhere. It wasn't true in big cities like New York or Los Angeles in the 1950s. But it was certainly true in the great, you know, open spaces like San Diego. Uh, so, so there, this is a historical shift for complicated reasons. A lot of it had to do, interestingly, with the Second World War because many of the young men who were drafted, not you know, a substantial number of the young men who were drafted and served on ships or in the Army had sexual experiences with men during that period. And, you know, these registered in their brains and they, when they came back, they often sought for ways to make that experience happen again in their lives. One of the ways you do that is to move to San Francisco. Although even there, you have to continue to be cautious, prudent. Uh, So the the historical developments change the situation for for gay men and I think also gay women. Although it's very interesting, we never talk, nobody ever talks about the lesbian side of this story. It's always told in terms of what happened to men. Uh, changes, dramatic changes that I was lucky enough to, to uh, you know, find, to identify with, and to act on when I was still in my 20s. And I, if I were a little, I think, I think I've, I've told you this, if I were had been born a little earlier and was maybe five or 10 years older, I don't think I would have made this change. I think I'd have stayed married, had more children, and had you know gay sex on the side, <laughs> as it were, secretly. Uh, that because I met I met a number of men who were a little old in San Francisco when I moved here in in the sixties who would who would embrace that solution to their d- dilemma. That is to say, they were still married. They were now in their forties. 
they had kids who were teenagers, uh, and they came into the city on weekends to hang out with their gay buddies and do do naughty things. Which you know, it, it, sometimes people refer to this as life on the down low. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. Yeah, yeah. So the DL, the DL, and I, you know, it was a, in my view, a reasonable solution to this issue under the circumstances. But I think of myself as being deeply fortunate that I was born in 1940 and therefore could, in a practical sense, make this change. Can we talk about? your decision and, and responsibility to tell your wife at the time um, about this change in the, in, your, in your life that you were committed to when you made that decision? Um, uh, how I decided to tell her? Well, I mean, just no, I, I the experience of, of telling her. Well, it was unpleasant. <laughs> you know, it was... It was uh, you know, I, in, objectively speaking, you say I, you could say I behaved reprehensibly. I married a woman under false pretenses, although I felt that it was legitimate at the time. Uh, it was complicated by the fact that this woman was a German woman. I met her in Berlin a year after college, and I had brought her to the United States as my bride and set her up, you know, and gotten her pregnant and so forth. Uh, so and it, it, there's no way in which revealing this to her could be n not be traumatic because she was you know we were poor and she had was in love with me and we were li living had and lived lived for together for th for 3 years uh I, I somehow I don't have a vivid re recollection of the actual moment of telling her uh I have of telling my 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 family, which I did on the phone. Maybe that's why it registered more. But I did have to tell her, and uh, not and then not just tell her that I was having sex with men, but that I was going to make a big change, so that I could have sex with men much more regularly, and that meant getting divorced. Mm. So I that all had to be confronted for. Uh, complicated reasons. All this happened in a matter of a few months in early 1967 after I had already accepted a job at Stanford. I was still living in, I was finishing my PhD in, in, at Harvard, but I already knew I was going to come to Stanford as an assistant professor in September. And in this compact period of time, I you know, had to make these changes, move in with my, my boyfriend, get divorced from my wife, and moved to California to take up this job. I'm curious what it was then like being on the Stanford faculty in 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 the late 1960s and 1970s um, as a gay man. And I, I I'm curious if you could talk about um, the, yeah the experience of that and how you handled um, how you handled that part of your being. Well, I did it. I did it. I was basically in the closet in the sense that I did not tell my colleagues or students or anybody when I got got here that I was not only gay but was living with my partner, my lover, in San Francisco. I, I, I kept that... I kept that quiet. I lived 40 miles away from the from my job. I came down here you know, on trains and buses and so forth. Uh, although you're an academic community, a community of professional historians at a place like Stanford is much more enlightened and tolerant than the society as a whole. So I didn't experience. I mean, these people knew I was living with a man in the city, my colleagues, my older colleagues. They never, they were incredibly tactful. They never brought it to my attention. And when in, in 1980 I officially came out, which I did by publishing a, a correspondence in, a, in a, an intellectual journal, uh, correspondence with a gay student, and therefore in a kind of public way announced, uh, they took it the vast majority of them uh, 
did not did not react negatively. They they, 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 they simply because I was fond of them and they were fond of me, and I was a, a success in terms of what they wanted me to do. That is to say, writing books and teaching classes. So I had a very easy time, very. Uh, and it had to do with being in the academy. At the very same t moment, if I had been, for example, in the medical school, not in the history department, I think I would have had a much rougher time. Mm. For, uh, as did many women, you know, doctors in training, in, because of the sexism that was prevailed there, and it expressed itself much more openly than in the humanities. So, you know, I was situated, my situation was one that made it easy uh, to do what I did. I, and, and some, one colleague who's now, now dead, a very distinguished American historian and whom I was f very fond of and close to, Carl Degler, he positively, he, you know, came in and embraced me. I think literally embraced me and said, oh, I'm so glad you did this, you know. But he, he you know, that's the kind of people they were. Mm. And my, I was also very lucky at the other end that I had an incredibly tolerant, liberal, lefty family who reacted similarly. Didn't, I did not have, it was easy to come out and to change my life to my, to my family. Let's talk about your family, because um, you've spoken a lot in conversations with me over the years we've known each other about your parents and your grandmothers. And if I can say so, as we were walking into the studio today, you talked about dreaming of one of your grandmas one of last night. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I was very lucky in my in my uh, that my two grandmothers, my paternal and maternal grandmothers, were very much part of my life. In in a more intimate way than is most the case, the, my mother's mother, oh, she her husband died in uh, died of cancer. In fact, in the forties, and she lived into the early sixties. And in the last dec decade and a half of her life, she the way she conducted her life was to move every four months from one daughter's house. She had three daughters to another's. So that meant that every year from 1947 until the early 60s, she was in my house, in her own bedroom, you know, three, four months of the year. So I net, it was not surprising that I became very close to her. She was a profoundly religious, pious woman, a good, very good human being. And, uh, you know, I, uh, my my own religious development was deeply influenced by, by her. The other grandmother, my father's mother, was a, high, a junior high school band teacher, conductor. Uh, she also was a widow. And when we built our house that we lived in from 1947 on, uh, my parents built a lower level of the house for her to live in which she did from 1947 until her death. And this was physically part of the same house where you could go down the stairs and see grandma mm. at any time. And so she was an intimate part of my life. She was, she's the person who I have musical connections with. She would take me to the concerts and uh, uh, su supported, I, she had record collections, so I'd play records and so forth. This arrangement wasn't entirely satisfactory from my mother's point of view, and they ended up in, uh, in each other's hair and drove my poor father crazy, I think. Uh, but these two, two women born in the, in the 1880s, you know, in their 60s for the most part when I spent time with them, uh, had, a, had a deep influence on me. Then I was also lucky in my... My parents, and that they uh, they were fun, they were good, they were left. Uh, they provided me, you know, they provided me with piano lessons and trumpet lessons, and uh, were devoted to me, and and admirable. And my they my my friends used to love to come to my house because they found my parents so much more. <laughs> What is it? Fun-loving mm. than their parents. Uh, 
so I, th- I when I think of my my even though I was burdened throughout this period by this sexual secret and the, the, the agonies that the, the internal agonies that it caused I my on a kind of day-to-day basis existential basis my life was very agreeable mm. and I, w- I would have described myself as happy and lucky and and wh- can you talk a little bit more about your parents well, yeah, my father was a school principal. He'd been an elementary school principal. Uh, he was a very interesting man. He died quite young. He died in his early 50s fighting a fire. He had a heart failure. Uh, he'd been a, an athlete. Uh, he was very funny and very foul-mouthed, at least at home. At school, he was a, a paragon of clean-mindedness. There was a Jekyll and Hyde character. But at home, he was incredibly raunchy, which my mother was not. And both my brother and I, and a younger brother, two years younger, loved, were vastly amused by my father's language. And I think maybe we could say, whereas your father observed this distinction between school and home, oh, absolutely. you've collapsed the difference. I've, that's right. I do not. I try to speak the same language both at home and at school. And sometimes to, uh, to people find that objectionable. So, but yeah, you know, you couldn't be dirty. You couldn't be an elementary school principal in the 1950s and talk dirty. So, uh, and my mother, my mother was also, all my family were t- school teachers. Uh, but, and she got a, a teaching degree and she did a little teaching, but by the time my brother and I came along, she was basically just like everybody in our neighborhood, a housewife. She occasionally took jobs as a substitute teacher in order to buy furniture or something. But she, she, uh, but, uh, and she you know, she, she was charming. Um, uh, and it was a very, it was a very good marriage. So they, you could, you could feel their fondness for one another. Every dinner, they, they, they cooked together, and they had lots of friends and so forth. So I, I, I thought it was a, a very fortunate situation. Uh, my mother lived until two thousand. She, you know, she lived into her nineties, uh, and I. Saw a lot of her. Even after I came to Stanford, I would regularly go to San Diego every couple of months. Uh, we had a, a further connection, which is slightly bizarre, in that she was an excellent bridge player, which I learned how to play f- from watching her, and would for, for years, along into her dotage, would play bridge or go to bridge tournaments with her which is of a, no intellectual or even psychological significance, but provided us with a lot of time together. Who are some of the other people that you would point to besides your parents and your grandmothers as helping you become who you, who you are? Well, I, had, I was also lucky in that I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Palo Alto. The, uh, young, she was, I think, seven years younger than my mother. She was born in 1915. So they were my neighbors, and I was because my mother and she were so close. I was had spent a lot of time visiting her as a little kid, and and her husband as well. And I they were my home away from home. If I were going to stay at Stanford you know, two days in a row, I would often just go and stay at their house, uh, as opposed to having to commute from San Francisco. Yeah, from San Francisco, right? And she was a you know tremendous person. Uh, uh, I loved her very much, and I'm still very connected. She had six kids, whom I'm, uh, I think five of whom are still alive, and whom I see quite a bit and consider close friends. So I, uh, she, she was important. And then uh, I had, obviously, when I got to Stanford, certain members of the faculty become, became close friends, people I would uh, talk to a lot. Often this work, this connection was more intellectual, more professional. You know, the, the, I was very flattered. Some of the older scholars, people the older they were in their 50s, uh, would consult with me about their work, you know, ask for my opinion about what they should write in their book about Germany or whatever. So I, uh, but, but these people did also become friends and, and uh, they influenced me. They were often brilliant writers funny uh, and great scholars 
and great, almost all of them great teachers. So I, I identified with them. Uh, that, and you, and you, the, the way your department becomes a central, central reality of your own identity. In, when you become an academic, it's sort of an amazing thing. You think about the reputation of the department. How can we make it better? How can I uphold my end of the deal? Uh, how can we hire this, you know, great figure to come join us and make us even more, more spectacular? You spend a lot of time and energy in the, when you're a professor doing that. Uh, and I, I quite loved the business. Of, of being a professor in a department and taking on, working very hard to enhance the, the reputation, the achievements of, of that of that department, and then you know when these as these people died off in the 20th century, it was very sort of sad for me. I because uh, they were well, they would they'd be over 100. Most of these men that I was especially attached, wow. attached to, if they were alive today. What has been your view uh, regarding teaching and, and your relationships with students, uh, right? Because we've, t- we've now spent some time talking about um, the, the people who've taught you and, and, and made you who you are. But then you've had this role as a, as a teacher, a, a lecturer, a leader in seminars, you know, for, for decades. I mean, what's been your experience of it? I mean, let me, let me say this, right? That I, I'm, I'm just an RA, Right. And this is my third year being an RA in the same dorm. And I have begun to, 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 to observe that each new year, right, there, there's a new wave of first-year students. And I'm experiencing people coming into Stanford. They're at the same stage of their life. I'm getting older. And I'm beginning to yes, notice you that are. <laughs> Yes, you are. <laughs> I, I can measure this distance between me and these incoming yeah. students. And the distance is getting bigger. And it's and it's there's something deeply moving about knowing that there is this cycle at work and that one gets the um, the privilege of participating in it. No, no, I, in a kind of technical way, when you take a job at a place like Stanford, you conceive of it as being fifty percent scholarship and fifty percent teaching, and you should excel at both, work hard at both. And I, I did, and that, that was the example set for me by my older colleagues. They were not only great producers of books and articles, they were fantastic classroom teachers and worked very hard at it. They, you know, it, was, it, wasn't a, it didn't take second place to their, to their scholarship, to their writing. You had to do both. And I, from the get-go, even as a graduate student, took it very seriously, worked very hard at getting good at it, I thought a lot about it, I, and I prided myself on the successes that I had as a teacher. And, you know, I taught for a long I, I continued teaching even after retirement. I t- taught until about really two years ago. Uh, and I, I, your, what you say about your experiences in RA is exactly right. I mean, there's great pleasure to be had in the encounter you, ha- you have with these young people. Uh, they're f- full of energy. They're beautiful. Uh, they're funny. Uh, and if you're in my field, you have the great pleasure, the very satisfying experience of introducing them to what you know are great thinkers and great writers or great musicians. It's, nothing is more wonderful than feeling, the teaching Jane Austen to a bunch of people who haven't read her. And being the first to reveal to them how marvelous and funny and 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 smart she is, so that that not everybody you t- all the subjects you teach not every day do you have such a good. Sometimes you have to teach people who are important but not very interesting, like John Stuart Mill, to which I would devote a lecture. Uh, but uh, the, the 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 most satisfaction in teaching comes from. Br- bringing it the the attention of these young people to things that you know are great and if they can get their heads bent around them or wrapped around them will give them depth and pleasure so i i've i've almost i've worked very hard as a teacher uh, uh, 
you know, but I actually, in the early years, when I was teaching a European intellectual history course every year, one on the 19th century, one on the 20th century, I wrote formal lectures. I didn't read them, I delivered them, but they took up a huge amount of my time preparing lectures. I, I did it, it I, I think I, in terms of just time alone, I spent as much time preparing and delivering teaching as, as writing books. Mm. But it, every, anybody at a place like Stanford or Harvard, I think, has re- realizes that they're supposed to do both and they're supposed to do both well. Can we talk about the difference between intellectual history and, and philosophy? Well, that's, that's sort of hard. And uh, philosophers almost, uh, the, the, many people who are philosophers are also historians of philosophy. That is to say, they write their own philosophical ideas, but they also, in their, especially in their teaching, sometimes in their writing, t- 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 uh, give courses on historical figures. Uh, so they, where they're functioning more like a, an intellectual historian. Uh, historians d- d- do not have the same responsibilities to truth or correctness that philosophers have. But I think of the main difference is that we have a, in, in intellectual history, you have a much wider cast of characters. You don't just treat people who are properly thought of as philosophers or talk about people who are philosophers. You also talk about what can broadly be called social thinkers or social theorists, people who've tried to talk about the nature of society, like Marx or like John Stuart Mill, whom I just mentioned. You also, and increasingly so in the course of my career, talk about uh, imaginative literature, music, and art. So you're, you have a, a, a broader canvas, and you're at the heart of intellectual history is seeing the connections, the affinities between act, you know, creative work in the different realms. So when you read Hegel, in, who's a philosopher, you see that he's got, got things in common, deep things in common with Beethoven, mm. the composer, both of them born in the same year. 1770, and the poet Wordsworth, also born in 1770. And this, what is a synoptic way of seeing these intellectuals as part of a moment, a part of a place and time, is the, the distinctive responsibility of the intellectual historian. And you know, people who teach the history of philosophy also try to do it contextually, but mainly they're tra- tracing lines of affinity or connection between earlier philosophers and later ones. Mm. And, it's, and the, only certain writers, certain characters qualify as real uh, philosophers. Uh, so so, so that, that's the, the working difference between the two for me. What are your hopes for your 84th year? Oh, I, I don't have any specific hopes. I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be doing what I've done in, in the past on a regular basis because of getting older. I'm not going to, uh, I used to go every two months to San Diego to see my mother and my, her her partner and uh, other friends. I have a sister-in-law and her children and so forth. And I'm not going to be making that trip anymore. So uh, that was a regular part of my life up until COVID. I'm also, for, for almost the same reasons, no longer going to take a yearly trip to New York City, which I would do for a week uh, with, a, with, a, with an old friend, a former boyfriend, to go to the opera, go to plays, uh, go to restaurants. Because uh, the trip, the, the, the effort of getting to the airport and getting on an airplane and getting from New York's airport to the hotel is more than I want to undertake. So I'm a, my, my experiences are going to contract in uh, 84, but I hope to have a, 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 the normal kinds of things. I hope to have people come to the house to visit me, like Alok is coming next week. I hope to go out to dinner. Uh, I hope every now and then to go do something in the city, like going to the opera uh, tomorrow. Uh, but I don't have any any specific hopes that I could identify f- for th- my 84th year. I hope it'll be like my my 83rd year. Mm. I want to. I just. I wanted to sort of repeat the. I'm perfectly happy with the life that I have, 
very perfectly happy with that. If I, if it might seem redundant or repetitive to other people, but I find it very satisfactory. I feel I have a year next year like I had last year. I'll be content. <laughs> you know, see, you're you're. I didn't would not have been able to say this when I was your age because I was, as you are, thinking about how do I get, you know, to some very distant place. That is becoming a professor. So then you got you got each year is a you know sort of step where you have to do certain things in that direction, like get good grades in your classes and write applications and so on and so forth. That that kind of planning for future development is long no longer a part of my life. Mm. That was my interview with Paul Robinson, the Richard W. Lyman Professor in the Humanities Emeritus. Paul, thank you for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to 90.1 FM, KZSU Stanford Radio. My name is Noah Sviven, and I was your host for Living in Time, an interview progress where I interview luminaries from the Stanford campus and beyond about some of the issues that matter most in our precious, finite lives. Join us next week for our next interview. Thank you for listening.